0: We pray, Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We thank you for sending us your word this morning. Please use your word to strengthen us, build our hearts, build our faith and our hope of what you have planned for us, and to build our motivation to live for you in this world. Bless our sermon time this morning. Use it to strengthen us and equip us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, welcome to... Wow, you guys are all sitting in the back of church. That's that's a good thing. Uh, Welcome to the third sermon in our sermon series after Easter here called Resurrection. Um, In this series, we're working through one chapter of the Bible for six straight weeks, but it's an important chapter. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is often called the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. Um, And just in case you've missed it, Or just in case you can't remember what we talked about an entire week ago or two full weeks ago, why don't we briefly recap what we've said so far in this chapter. So, the Sunday after Easter, we read the first 11 verses of this chapter, and in those verses, Paul very clearly established the fact of Jesus' resurrection. He listed this whole list of people who had seen Jesus after he rose, including last, and most unexpectedly, Paul himself because he had been an enemy, a persecutor of Christians, until Jesus appeared to him, and now he became a Christian missionary. So those first verses, we talked about all the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Last week, we read the next eight verses, where Paul took Jesus' resurrection and he linked it to our own. In those verses, Paul basically said, it makes no sense to believe that Jesus rose on Easter, and to not also believe that you are going to rise someday. Because he lives, we also will live. And that's going to be eternally in heaven, but that's also spiritually right now, that we get to live a full life, a life of full faith, because we have a Savior who's fully risen from the dead. That was the verses from last week. Today, we continue with the next set of verses, and it starts with this one, kind of the transition into this section. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits. Of those who have fallen asleep. So here's my first question: When you hear that word "firstfruits," what do you think of? Do you think of like uh, giving, like tithing, like giving your first fruits to the Lord? If so, that's okay because the Bible sometimes uses this picture of firstfruits to talk about giving. But that's not what we're talking about here. It's something much simpler. Um, it's right to the word itself if you are a farmer if you've been working all year long to raise this whole field of corn what does it mean the first time that you find an ear of corn that looks like this what means that you better go tune up the combine because pretty soon there's going to be a whole lot more ears of corn needing to be harvested pretty soon it's going to be harvest time this is flying over anybody's head that's not from the Midwest. So why don't we use a more local example? If you're a peach farmer, peach grower, you've been working all year long on your peach grove, Um, what does it mean the first time that you find a peach that looks like this? Well, it means you better go call up your picking crew because pretty soon there's gonna be a lot more peaches. Pretty soon it's gonna be harvest time. I've never heard of a cornfield that produced a single ear of corn only. I've never heard of a peach grove that only produced one single peach. When you see the first fruits, you know that more fruits are coming. And so it is with the resurrection from the dead. When we see Jesus rise from his grave on Easter, we know that he's not going to be the only one. Through faith in him, we one day will rise from our own graves. And we will physically join with Jesus for all eternity in heaven. And this is like a fundamental truth of Christianity. This is the point of this whole chapter. We sang about this in our song of forgiveness today. We we didn't just say Jesus rose. We said, I will rise when he calls my name. What happened to Jesus on Easter is going to happen to all of his children at the last day. So that's a wonderful thing to look forward to. But it is worth noting, and Paul now notes it, without Jesus in the picture, we would be looking at a whole different reality. Uh, Paul reminds us of a couple of uncomfortable truths. He says, death came through a man. In fact, in Adam, all die. Paul is reminding us that before Jesus came into the picture, we were not part of God's harvest at all. In fact, we were headed for a very different kind of harvest. This would be the harvest described in Galatians 6 where it says, a man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. In other words, if we spend our whole lives defying God and selfishly doing what we think is best for us, it's as though we are planting the seeds of our own death, of our own eternal death, eternal destruction in hell. That's the path that mankind has been on ever since Adam and Eve first sinned against God and ate that forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. And that is the path that we were born on when we came into this world with our own sinful nature in our own heart. And so we hear those verses from Galatians 6, a person who reaps what they sow, and it's scary if you think about it. How will any of us escape reaping what we've sown? How would any of us escape having to face God's wrath and answer to him, for all the different wrong things that we've done. How could any of us escape? Well, the answer is only through Christ. Yes, death came through a man, but the resurrection of the dead now comes also through a man. For just as in Adam all die, in Christ we all will be made alive. What Paul's really saying here is that Jesus is the second Adam, he succeeded where the first Adam failed. Do you ever think of Jesus like that? Like Adam, model number one, came into the world in the Garden of Eden and it didn't end up going so well. And then Jesus is Adam, version 2.0, who succeeds, where the original one failed. I mean, the first Adam came into a perfect world and he fell. and He sinned and the whole world became imperfect and flawed and corrupted. The second Adam, Jesus, came into a very flawed, corrupted world, and yet he was perfect. And he lived such a perfect life that ultimately it will undo everything the first Adam did. Ultimately, this world will be fixed and restored again at the last day. So Jesus is like the substitute Adam, who fixed all the things that the first Adam broke. But he's not just the substitute Adam. He's also the substitute you. Alright, so we've kind of talked about the fallen state of man and the sinful nature and reaping what we sow, but take a minute and as we think about sin, just really think of yours. And I will think of mine. Think about the different moral failures in your life. Think about the different times that you knew something was wrong, you knew it, and you went ahead and did it anyway. Think about the times that you selfishly hurt somebody else just so that you could get what you want. Those sins, our sins, were sins against God. Those sins deserve death. But Jesus is the substitute you. Jesus is the substitute me. And his perfect life with his perfect motivations and his perfect actions and words and thoughts, it was lived for you. In your baptism, you were clothed with Jesus' perfection, declared to be holy in God's sight, In your baptism, you belong, God says, in his harvest. Through your baptism, you will be raised to eternal life. And the point of this whole chapter is it's really going to happen. It is really going to happen to all of God's children, and it really is going to happen to you. But as for right now, it just hasn't quite happened yet. And so we're in that awkward in-between time, right, where the first fruits have been gathered, but the rest of the harvest is still to come. Christ has risen from the dead, and the rest of us are waiting. We have loved ones who have passed on before us. Their souls are in heaven with God, but their bodies, too, are waiting for what we know is going to happen. As in Adam we all die. In Christ we all will be made alive. But it's each in turn. First, Christ the firstfruits. Then, when he comes, it's those who belong to him. The day is coming when Jesus is going to come back and he's going to raise us from the dead and he's going to take all his children home. And on that day, Paul's next point is we are going to realize how powerful Jesus actually is and has been the whole time. Because let's face it, Jesus didn't always look that powerful during his life here on earth. He mostly looked like a normal person, nothing special to attract us to him. Then, he didn't look very powerful on the cross as he suffered and died. Even though spiritually he's defeating sin and death and hell, he didn't look that powerful dying on the cross. At Easter, he looked sort of powerful because he rose from the dead. He appeared to some people. That was amazing. But he didn't appear to all the people. He didn't do all the things he could have done. He ascended into heaven and many did not see him. But at the last day, Jesus' power is going to be demonstrated for everyone and everything in the universe to see. Paul writes, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is going to be death. So this is just kind of cool. There's a lot of things in the Bible that we aren't told. There's a lot of things in the Bible that we have to wonder about. Maybe we'll learn when we get to heaven. But some things God reveals to us, and they're amazing, and one of the things God reveals a lot of information about is how the world is going to end. We have a whole Bible basics lesson on this specific topic where God says this is exactly what's going to happen. The clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. The trumpet blast will sound. Jesus will return down through those clouds just like he went up through the clouds at his ascension day. And on that day every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on that day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So on that day, there are going to be no more earthly rulers who set up a law that it's illegal to worship Jesus in their country. On that day, there are going to be no more intellectuals who would scoff at the idea that there's a God who created and sustains our universe. On that day, there's going to be no pressure from a pop culture, which would label you as narrow-minded for thinking that Jesus is the only way that a person could get to heaven. On that day, there will be none of those things. Instead, every knee will bow. Every dominion and authority will be overcome. Every enemy will be crushed beneath Jesus' feet, including the enemy of Satan, who's going to be locked up in hell forever, and including the enemy of death, overcome by resurrection. And when all these things have happened, on the last day, Jesus' mission will be completed. He will hand over the kingdom to his Father. He will sit down at the right hand of God, and the marriage feast will begin that we will get to be a part of for all eternity in heaven. The Bible gives us a lot of detail about these things. Faith in Jesus gives us a ton to look forward to on the last day. People are scared of the day that our world is going to end. Through faith in Jesus, we're excited, really, for the day that our world is going to end. Because we know the eternal world and eternal life that God will unfold for all of us. And yet, strangely, sometimes we live as though none of this is going to happen at all. And uh, at times, it's shocking how shallow and sinful the lives of Christians can be. And this was absolutely the case for the church in Corinth. So we're here, in reading this letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but if you read the first 14 chapters, you would see that there were tons of problems going on in the Corinthian congregation. Out of all those New Testament churches, this is probably the biggest one. It was also probably the most messed up. There was an open case of sexual immorality going on in the congregation, and instead of disciplining the people involved, the church was rejoicing at how progressive they were. There were members of the church who were openly visiting prostitutes. There were members of the church who were suing one another in court. Members of the church were publicly arguing with one another about whose spiritual gifts were better. This church was abusing the Lord's Supper they had turned it into a discrimination type of thing where the rich people in the congregation got all that they wanted to eat and drink and the poor people were left outside without getting anything at all. The church in Corinth was kind of a mess. Their actions did not fall in line with their words. They said they believed these things but they weren't living like it at all. So one of the major purposes of Paul's first letter to the, in, to the Corinthians is to give them a reality check. He says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That's Paul's words in chapter 10. And now in chapter 15, he says, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. This is all in the flow of Paul's thought. So it's tough to preach a six-week sermon series on one chapter because you don't want to just stop at this verse. Paul has a lot more to say. Uh, We will continue with his flow of thought next week and and see how he continues to talk about the resurrection and what it's going to be like. But for now, we need like a summary of, of this section. What are we learning from these verses that we're studying today? And if you really look at it, if you really think about it, I think Paul's encouragement is this. He's telling the Corinthians, you guys need to remember who you are. Remember who you are. He reminded them of this already in chapter 6. You might remember this familiar verse. He writes to them, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Remember who you are. That's a good reminder for us too, especially on a day that we've just witnessed a baptism. Because right? in baptism, God does some really amazing things for us. He, he marks us as his own. He adopts us into his family. He clothes us with his righteousness. Uh, but on top of all these things, what God does in baptism is he tells us who we are. He gives us an unshakable identity. Now, identity is a loaded term these days, isn't it? People are choosing to identify themselves in all kinds of different ways. People are identifying themselves by, you know, which generation am I from? Identifying myself by age or by race or by finances or by my political opinions or by sexual orientation or by what do other people think of me. But people are choosing from you know hundreds of different factors, whether real or perceived and saying, this is what defines me, this is who I am. But what does God do in baptism? He says, away with all of that, this is what defines you, this is who you are. At the bottom of it all, at the end of the day, you are a child of God. And that's why we sing that song every time somebody's baptized in our church. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. I am a child of God. Yes, I am. And in my Father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. That's who I am. And this, above all else, is what we want our children to know about themselves. And this is what we want you to know, too. On the day of your baptism, God adopted you into your family. He marked you as his own, and he said that you belong in his house. He gave you a rock-solid identity that nobody can take away from you, no matter what others are saying about you, no matter what you feel about yourself. And through God's word today, the encouragement to you is remember who you are. And when you do when you remember that you're a baptized, redeemed, eternal child of God, now you're not only viewing yourself the way God views you, but you're viewing your life the way God views your life, as the opportunity that it is to turn from sin, to cling in faith to Christ, and to view your whole life as an opportunity to share the message of Christ's resurrection. So then, Paul wraps up this section by giving a few specific examples which I kind of wish we had more context on and I kind of wish we had more information about. The first one is he reminds his readers of Christians who are being baptized for the dead. What does that mean? I wish I had more context. Nowhere else in the Bible are we taught that you could be baptized for someone who died and it would count for them, so it doesn't seem to be the meaning here. What most commentators think is that this really is a reference to the intense persecution of the time. There were church leaders speaking God's word, teaching about Jesus, bringing people into the church, and those church leaders got captured and killed. And yet new converts would come into the church, and when they were baptized into Christianity, they were doing it with a person in mind who's dead, a person who's already in heaven. And they're confident that through their baptism, They will be reunited one day, baptized with the thought in mind of those who are already waiting for you in heaven. This is an intense time to become a Christian. There was a lot of persecution. The next example that Paul reminds his readers of is how he fought wild beasts in Ephesus. I wish I had more information on that story. Makes you think of Paul getting thrown to the arena and fighting lions and we don't know that that ever happened. It seems more likely that this is one of multiple times when a mob of angry people like savage wild beasts attacked Paul and beat him and left him for dead. It was one of those occasions where he's left for dead. When he comes back to consciousness, he gets up and goes back into the city to tell more people about Jesus. Why would he be doing this if he doesn't believe in the resurrection from the dead? Finally, the last example, he reminds his readers, he and the other apostles are facing death every day as they bring the good news of Jesus to a very hostile, persecution-filled world. But Paul and all the rest of those early Christians didn't do those things for no reason. They didn't take those risks for no reason. They did it because they knew who they were. Baptized, redeemed children of God. And they knew where they were going. To an eternal life with God in heaven, which at some point would be punctuated by their own physical resurrection from the grave. And that knowledge led them to go out into their world and endure all things for the sake of sharing the gospel so that one more person at a time could be rescued from sin and death and through Jesus could find a lasting spiritual identity and the sure hope of eternal life. May God, by his grace, help us to view our baptism in the same way for what it is. May God, by his grace, help us to view ourselves as who we are And may God, by his grace, help us to embrace our lives as the life-saving, gospel-sharing mission that they are. God grant that to us. Amen. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your resurrected Savior.